Hello and welcome to the Saints and Sinner podcast. We're a reformed podcast to help God's people find their rest in the finished work of Christ. My name's Daniel and I'm here with my co-host Brian. And today we're going to be having a conversation about Calvinism. And I know that's a dirty word. And maybe you're sitting there, you had an allergic reaction as I said that word. Um, but please don't tap out. Stay turn with off, us. Turn it off. <laughs> turn it off. No. <laughs> mute, mute. I promise it'll be worth your time. Um, we're, we're really excited to have this conversation today. But before, before we do, we're going to just begin with talking about something that's going on in the world at the moment. And so I, I don't know if, if you're the kind of person that, that goes on Facebook and, and X, as it's called now, <laughs> you, you may have noticed that there's been a bit of controversy surrounding Alistair Begg who uh, in, I believe it was in a sermon, he said he gave some sort of pastoral advice to a grandmother that he knew that was really concerned that her grandson was gay and he was getting married and she wasn't sure whether she should go to the wedding or not um, because she was like, oh, I, I want to honor the Lord, but I don't want to offend my grandson and lose that good relationship I have with him. And so Alistair Begg gave the advice that she should go to the wedding and that has just basically kicked up the hornet's nest. And now everyone everywhere is, you know, talking about this thing and getting all uptight and upset about it. And, and, and some of it's been totally fair. Others, it's been a bit nasty and just cancel culture. You know, some people are saying, we should cancel this guy. Don't listen to him anymore because of it. And I'm like, oh, I think he gave unwise advice, but I wouldn't cancel him for something like that. And, and so what do you think he was trying to get at? Yeah, I think what he's trying to get at here is Christians ought to love whoever we come across in life. And we would agree with that, but I think maybe we would have to clarify the way, the way we do those things is to not uphold or celebrate or encourage kind of sinfulness. And so what we see in attending the wedding of a gay couple is the entire day is, is meant to celebrate the union of these two individuals. And so we would say that might not be the wise thing to do as a Christian, because in doing so, you are now a part of that celebration. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the issue, isn't it, Brian? And uh, so, so our, our actions speak. Our actions are never silent. I remember having a conversation with one of my pastors in, in Australia, and we were chatting about whether I and, and my friend should take communion at a Roman Catholic wedding service. And we were like, yeah, well, what's the problem with that? And, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this pastor wisely warned us saying, I, I think if you do that, you're sending a, a positive message about the act, uh, you know, and of what's going on there. So he, he you know, um, said that we should refrain from that. And I, I think the same will be the case here with the situation with this grandmother. And I totally get it. It must be such a painful situation mm -hmm. to be in. My heart breaks for her. That would be really, really hard. And it's, it's certainly a cross to bear, isn't it? Because, you know, Jesus says, talks about, doesn't he, hating uh, father and mother and, and son, etc., in relation to our, you know, love for him and I think this is kind of where some of that comes home to roost. Yeah, and, and you know you have the passages in Scripture where Jesus receives sinners and tax collectors, and he brings the outcasts and the dirty individuals of society to himself. But what you don't see Jesus doing is going with them to the brothels or to the cult prostitutes and to the, you know, the places of drunkenness and just sitting with them and attending and celebrating with them. You see a Jesus who's kind to them and receives them in, shows them grace, and then calls them out of their sin. And unfortunately, you know, in, in this particular context, I would have no issue with, if I was her, receiving my grandson and, and his partner into my home for a dinner, for a meal, to extend love and graciousness to them. Then I would draw the line in going to a, 
an event that celebrates their union because I can't do that. Yeah, me too. And and why maybe this matters for us here in England is John Stevens, so the, the head of the FIC, great guy in lots of ways. Yeah, I've, I've met him a few times. He's a really lovely guy. Was was one of the, the few people def- defending Alistair Begg and saying he thought that that was good pastoral advice. And um, I guess that's quite a big thing. She's like, well, this is the guy that heads up the FIC, which is one of the best you know, networks here in, in the UK when it comes to gospel churches. Mm. And, and while it's, so it's not heresy, you know, so you wouldn't say, okay, that guy's damned because he said this. That, that's ridiculous. And the people that say that kind of thing, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm. But we would just say it's pastorally unwise. And even though I get it, I do get it. And I get the temptation to say it. I think it's unwise because as well, we need to remember, how, how do I best love that other person? By going, am I loving my, grand, my grandson? And I think the answer is no, because you're, you're saying to your grandson, ultimately, that he, you know, Jesus and God's word plays second fiddle mm. to him and the wedding. I think a wise approach here would likely be to ask your grandson and his partner over for dinner have an evening with them, love them, you know, show them grace and kindness, be hospitable, and then express to them, hey, look, you know, here's the way I see things. Here's the way I view it. This is why I cannot come. But I want you, both of you to know that I love you. You know, I love you. And I I want you to see the truth of what Jesus has come to do and and to receive that and turn from your your sins. But I can't come to your, the celebration of your union. Yeah, that's good, Brian. We 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 don't want to send the impression that we think that Jesus is only for good people. Uh, and perhaps some of the people that, that I've, we've sort of seen online here might be giving that kind of an impression. Mm. Um, so we, we, you're totally right there. We we want, you know, if this was our grandson, we want to say, look, man, we, we love you so much. And we think Jesus has something better for you. Mm. And um, he receives all kinds of sinners, me included. I'm, I'm the worst of them, <laughs> as the mm. apostle Paul would say. So we definitely would want to land that gospel bomb as well as sending a message. And Amen. Yeah. So, well, we're going to change gears completely now and talk <laughs> about that, that dirty word, Calvinism. Oh, such a disgusting thing, isn't it, Brian? I'm so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> so, so what is Calvinism? Let me just come straight out of the gate here and then I'll throw the ball over to Brian. So, so to, to be a Calvinist is to have a God-entranced view of the world. It's the God of Calvin, of Edwards, of Whitfield, of Spurgeon, of Lloyd-Jones. It's to see God as the supreme Lord and Savior, the only one worthy of worship. It's to see God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The one who breathed every star into being, the one who decreed the end from the beginning. The one who is in charge of every single atom in the universe. You know, as I don't, I don't remember who said it, but I, I love the quote that I think it was R.C. Sproul. There's not a single maverick molecule in the universe. And so, to be a Calvinist, to, so before, so Brian's going to talk about the doctrines of grace and tulip. You, you may have heard of that before, but to just back up from that, to begin with, uh, to be a Calvinist is to have that God entranced view of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we are kind of going to speak on is this idea of five points of Calvinism. It's summarized by the acronym TULIP, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, it's also known as the doctrines of grace, because in it we find 
kind of a gracious element to salvation, knowing that it's not of us, but of God. And so that we don't have to kind of look internally at where we find our hope, but we can look outwardly to the God who saves sovereignly, as, as Daniel was saying. But why does this get such a bad rap? You know, why do people hate this so much? And I think it's because that's not how it's normally presented. You know, they might call it the doctrines of grace, but instead of providing the gracious elements of this truth, they hammer it into people and they use it as a weapon to beat down other people who don't believe this or who kind of question things. And you know what I actually say there, you know, I wasn't a Calvinist throughout my entire Christian life. I remember wrestling with these ideas and thinking, man, I hate that idea. That, that Calvinism stuff sounds horrible and it's, it makes God into a monster. I don't want to believe that message. I don't want to believe that doctrine. And then I remember when the light bulb went on and I saw it in scripture for the first time, and I think for two weeks I was miserable. I was like, this is horrible. I can't believe this is true. What am I going to do? And then there was a turning point flowing from that where all of a sudden, rather than it making me miserable, it gave me great comfort and joy, and it made me humble before the Lord, and it made me stand back in awe of what He's done. Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, there's two reasons, isn't there, why people hate Calvinism? And Brian, you're so right. I think one of them is because we have a sadly often a high view of man and a low view of God, and so it's like man, man is sovereign. Man gets to call the shots, and God then just responds to whatever we do. And so we've sort of flipped, actually, the, the, the paradigm of the Bible and of the world in which we live so that we're at the top on the throne and God's sort of our little servant just mm. coming along and doing what we say. And so that, that's, that's all of us. That's our natural posture. We love that because we want to be on the throne. And, and along comes Calvinism, as, as Piper once said, like a roaring lion devouring free willers like us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I think you know uh, there's something to that. I think free will is a bit of a golden calf in not just in in people's minds, but particularly in, in Christians' hearts and minds. Hmm. Uh, we have this view that we are we are totally free to do whatever we want, and we get what people are saying. You know, so if, if by that what people mean is we make choices, we would say, yeah, of course we do. You know, Brian and I chose to sat down to sit down here today and to record this episode. Yesterday, I, I chose to walk to work at the time that I decided to walk to work. We make choices. But I remember Michael Reeves once saying, we do what we want, but we don't choose what to want. Hmm. And so the question is, is my will free? So of course, I do what I want to do. But why do I do what, what I do? And the answer is because I'm enslaved to sin. And so that there's no human being on earth that will naturally want to turn to God. Well, we'll talk about this in much more detail in total, under total depravity, but I wanted to come just straight up with that, because I think that's one of the big reasons why people hate Calvinism, this idea of free will. And, and, and we'll talk about maybe why we would say we would agree with Martin Luther that, no, the will is under bondage. It's, mm. it's, it's in sin. Uh, it's in the bondage of sin. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. There's a distinction between free choice and free will. And, and when we talk about that kind of free choice or, or maybe even a biblical idea of free will, it's not autonomous, right? We don't have it in isolation from God. We're under the sovereignty of the Lord, and we're also governed by our own nature, right? We can't do what's outside of our nature. Human beings, I can't just go outside and flap my wings and start flying like a bird because it's outside yeah. my nature. But then you'd say, well, if you can't do that, then do you still have free choice? Well, of course I do, but I'm kind of dictated by 
my nature and my being and, and what's true of me at the core. And what's true of me at the core is I'm born in sin. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, so I think that's one reason why people often don't like Calvinism. And the other, the other reason, which is a lot more sobering, and I'm not very happy about it, but a, a lot of a lot of people hate Calvinism because of me. Um, <laughs> yes. So, so you know, Calvinism is intellectually stimulating and exciting, and so often it's tempting to want to then slam that down everyone's throats. And uh, I have bashed, and Brian has bashed many people over the head with Calvinism mm. in our past, um, much to our shame. And and here, here's what I want to say to that: an arrogant Calvinist is just a Pharisee dressed up with a fresh coat of paint. Mm. That's what an arrogant Calvinist is. It's just another Pharisee. And so, ca- Calvinism in the head will make you big and people small, but Calvinism in the heart will make God big, and therefore you small. Because if you're always looking down at people, you'll never see God. Yeah, because God is is above you. And so Calvinism is in the heart is more like an oasis of life to people, uh, where they come and, and and realize that this is the one who is worthy of all worship and adoration. That's the kind of Calvinism we want to champion, where people go away thinking this God is so great in yeah. Christ. Yeah, ca- true Calvinism should lead to greater peace, joy, and comfort. Lead to greater rest. And greater humility, where you walk among your brothers and sisters in the Lord, even those who disagree with you, and you're patient with them, you're gracious to them, knowing that, hey, you didn't, you didn't come up with this information. You didn't learn it of your own intellect and your own wisdom. God reveals the truth of his word to you, and you came to believe it. But when you understand the ins and outs of everything he's doing and the sovereignty of himself and in, in kind of salvation, you, you sit back and go, none of this is of me, and my only hope for anyone else in the world to believe this is, is God working again. And I, I just think there's this term that we often throw out in Calvinist circle, circles called cage stage Calvinism. <laughs> and essentially what this is, you know, when somebody newly adopts this doctrine, they kind of have to be kept in a cage. Because what they do is the minute somebody mentions something that goes against this doctrine, whether that be in a prayer, like somebody, you know, you, you kind of recount those times where somebody is praying, oh God, um, you know, I pray that that person would open their heart to God and, and they would choose to believe and follow the Lord. And then all of a sudden the cage stager jumps out in the middle of the prayer and says, that's, that's wrong. That's terrible. You, that's not even biblical. You're, you're horrible. That prayer is not right. God's not going to honor that prayer because he's in control. And you're like, whoa, hold on a minute. Get back in your cage. Let's settle down. This is, this is not the way we kind of speak to our brothers and sisters or speak to anyone that's, that's just not right. And I, I think when you, um, when you kind of grow past that point, what we see is reformed people, Calvinist individuals going to those who disagree with them and say lovingly, hey, you know, uh, I really appreciate your heart and, and how you've prayed. And I really appreciate what, what you're trying to get at. I'd love to get to know you more. And as the relationship develops, maybe you get opportunities to talk about these truths and show them, hey, there's great joy here. There, there's so many riches in this doctrine that are for you, not against you. Mm, mm, that's so good. Yeah. And, and it's worth throwing people a bone, isn't it? You know, so, so when someone comes up and talks, about, hey, I, you know, I chose Jesus. I don't think the, the initial response should be, that's stupid. No, you didn't. God chose you. I think it's saying, you know what? Yeah, when when you when you came to Christ, you really did yeah. choose Jesus, and and that's because He had elected you first from before the foundation of the world. But you know what? You you really did. We don't need to come and crush people immediately. Yeah. That, that's not how people treated me when I first became a Christian, and sadly, I, you know, I, I've treated people in, in a pretty heavy-handed way in in some of those areas, and 
I remember how, just just quickly. This is a bit of a, a rabbit hole, but just very very quickly how I how I became a Calvinist. It wasn't through an argument, and I don't know if I've ever convinced anyone of Calvinism through an argument either. <laughs> but it was a Bible college. I went to this Reformed Presbyterian Bible college, and I was an Arminian. I hated Calvinism with a passion. Mm. So if you're one of those people too, well then then bear with us because you know we we've been there. We get that. And so I went to this college, and I I proudly thought, you know what, I'm going to convince everyone of my Arminianism here. Even the lecturers, they're so <laughs> arrogant, man. I've been a Christian for like two years, you know? And uh, no one argued with me, and that's what blew me away. And the lecturers just taught the Bible, opened up Genesis, opened up Exodus. And I remember Gary Miller, the principal, going through Exodus and saying, look, we've got all of this data here. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Three of these things. All of these things are true. And all of a sudden, I was like, that makes loads of sense. That is just what the Bible says. I don't need to... I don't need to try and sort of argue for one or the other. There's a compatibilism here. Oh, and that makes me a Calvinist. Well, then I guess I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> and you know, and so that, that I, I know there's more to it than that, but that was sort of the first foundational stone that, that sort of moved me on. And but I, I just wanted to share that because it wasn't an argument. No one beat beat that into me. I just someone just opened up a Bible in a lecture, and I was like, oh yeah, that makes loads of sense. So. Hmm. Should we move through the points? Yeah, let's let's start off. So total depravity, that's that's what's up first. And I think I think what would be helpful is just to give kind of a, a brief definition of what we're talking about. So uh, total depravity essentially teaches that because of the fall, the, the sin of Adam and Eve, man has become corrupt. And this corruption has spread throughout all of mankind. We have died in Adam. This is a spiritual death, but it also brings a physical death. And because of that sinful nature that we've received, we are unable by our own ability to believe the gospel for salvation. In fact, we are not capable of doing anything good. We are only capable of doing evil. Now, that's a bold statement, but we're going to clarify that as we go through this point. Just to piggyback off everything, Brian, you know, you were saying that we're unable to save ourselves and we're guilty from, from head to toe. We're enslaved to our sinful desires. And so depravity is more uncomfortable than sinning. See, because uh, when I sin, I might miss the odd mark. But if I'm depraved, it means that I'm warped and twisted at the very core of my being. And that is way more uncomfortable than saying, oh, you know, I, I slipped up yesterday or I made an error today. It's no, there's something worse than the, the very deepest fiber of my very being. I'm, I'm, I'm depraved, I'm twisted and warped. And so my whole... Angle isn't towards God, it's towards myself and towards sin and towards mess and towards you know the pigsty in Luke 15. I naturally gravitate to the pigs. Mm. That, that's, that's what total depravity is. And, and t- total means two things. Firstly, the whole human race is in this shipwreck. And so so no, no, no race or generation has the magic gene to muscle out of Slin's slums. Mm. <laughs> every single race, every single person, is, is we're in this together, sadly. So we know this is the case because Paul says in Romans 3, verse 9 to 12, he says this, are we Jews any better than the Gentiles? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's everyone, by the way, all of us are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is absolutely everyone that's ever lived. Mm. So, so total means the whole human race. And secondly, it means every facet of our human nature. And so it's not like, 
you know, back to this free free will idea. It's not like, okay, I, I sin with my words and my thoughts, but my will is free. No, every part of, of my human nature is sadly under sin. Mm. Now, why do we hate that so much? And I think if you go into society, it's the same whether you're a Christian or not. You, know, you talk to people in the streets and they go, oh, I'm actually a good person. You know, I'm not bad and you can ask anybody that question and they'll they'll tell you the same answer i'm good i'm 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 a good i'm a good person nobody wants to believe what's true of themselves at the deepest core and so what they do is they make excuses for their sins they make excuses for the things that they do and they say i do evil things but really i'm still good and it's like no well we think you do evil things because you're evil at your core if you were good you would do good things and and nothing else and this stems all the way back to what we see in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. And what do they immediately do? They take fig leaves and they cover themselves up and cover up the shame of their nakedness. And so what happens when sin shows up is an immediate response to hide it from one another, to hide our shame and to present ourselves as cleaner than we actually are. And so this is a problem that stems all the way from the beginning of the book of Genesis, and it reverberates throughout all of humanity and society, and it continues on into each of our own lives where we want to hide our sin. So when this comes up in our own lives, like you're, you're totally depraved, right? We want to push back against that because we hate the idea of something showing us our sin and that we have to own it. That's, that's, a, really, that's a really good point, Brian. Uh, and and we see it so clearly in our own lives. And if you're if you're married, then you definitely get this because you're going to step on each other's toes. And if you're part of a church, you're going to get this because you step on each other's toes there. And how do I often respond when someone calls me out on my behavior or sin? I'd love to say that my response goes something like this: Oh, Brooke, my wife, thank you so much. You <laughs> you are so right. You know, so I, loving of you I, to so say loving that. Of you. I, Thank you so much. I think you're, I'm, I'm going to try and change that from Oh, your on. wounds feel like kisses. They're so good. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, you know, we, we don't respond like that, do we? Instead, we respond with anger. A wall goes up. We defend ourselves. We become our own defense attorney. Uh, you know, it starts piping up and, and, and defending ourselves. And, and, and so that shows that all, all of us get this in our heads, but we struggle to believe it in our hearts. If I believed it in my heart, I wouldn't be surprised when very often people call me out on my sin. What's that? What's that Spurgeon quote? Oh, yes. Because yes. So Spurgeon said, um, <laughs> if anyone speaks ill of you, you should smile and be happy because yeah. you're much worse than he thinks you are. Yeah, don't, don't be angry with him. Don't be angry when he, call, when, he calls, when he thinks ill of you because you're way worse than he thinks that you are. <laughs> I love that. It's so, it's so helpful to remember that, though, isn't it? Absolutely. It's like, oh, yeah, my, my wife just called me out on that or some church member or Brian just called me out on some sin. He doesn't realize how bad I am. You know, he, he, he's hurt. He hasn't got it at all. I'm worse. <laughs> thank, thank you for that high praise because, ooh, you really knew how deep it goes. Oh, it's so true, man. And, and yeah, so we, we don't like it, do we? And as, as you were saying, Brian, we, we put on fig leaves and we do that to others and we do it to God as well, don't we? And that's because we have this idea, probably still from the covenant of works in our heads, where we think, okay, that the world is a stage and I need to perform. And I need to perform in front of God. I need to do the right things. And, and if I do the right things, then he'll accept me and I've qualified. Hmm. Whereas, well, well, we'll get to the gospel soon. So, so where is this in the Bible? How, how do we kind of conclude yep. these things? So, so one of the best places to go is well, Romans 3 that we read just then. Uh, another place is Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2 verse 1 says this, and, and you were 
dead in the trespasses and sins. So that that word dead is a, a bit of a, a bitey one. And some people describe the Christian, well, the non-believer, sort of like swimming in the ocean, you know, trying not to drown, and, and Christ throws out a lifeline, and then they grab a hold of yeah, it. Just grab it. Just grab it, man. Just grab it. You know, uh, but but we're, we're dead at the bottom of the ocean. So we're, we're Lazarus in the tomb. Mm. Uh, I don't care what anyone says. Lazarus ain't standing back up on his own accord. He's dead. He's, he's out cold. And so, so Paul says that you, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So worldliness, following the prince of the power of the yeah, air, satanic, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. And, and, and before we you know, start blaming Satan or the world, he then goes on, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And so it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, th this is who we, we are. And, um, and we were therefore, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I think Ephesians 2 is one of the best places yeah. to go to see, hey, you know what? We really are rotters. So, so right there, you, you see this wonderful contrast in what Paul's saying here. In one aspect, in verse 1, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, right? So you're a dead person here. But then if you see in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So, so what does it mean to be in this dead state? Well, you're living out in the passions of your flesh, living out of your sin nature, living out in your corruption. So dead in one sense, but that deadness means that you're alive to sin. Yeah, so true, isn't it? And, and so what we need to do then is stand up, and um, choose God and get on with it. Yeah, like the guy who flatlines and they, they have to bring the paddles out to shock him back to life. Like, well, just just see what he gets on and then see how he does. You know, maybe he'll maybe he'll just start up. Again. Yeah. So the mo the most beautiful two words are there in verse four, but God, mm. and that's the good news. So so we were dead in our sins, unable to get up, un unable to choose God, unable to do anything good, but God being rich in mercy mm. because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But hold on a minute. Then how, how is any of this fair? You know, we're looking back to something that happened thousands of years ago in a garden where two people, Adam and Eve, sin, and then all of a sudden, all of humanity dies and has this spiritual corruption and they're guilty before the Lord because of that first sin. How is that fair? What we need to understand, and when we approach the Bible, not just here, but almost everywhere else, is that we cannot read this book through the lens of Western modern society, right? So what we've adopted in the West is this kind of hyper-individualism, whereas in Scripture, and many of the cultures in the world today, they would have understand we are a people. We rise and fall together. And that man, Adam, was our representative head. And where he succeeds, we succeed. And where he fails, we fail. You, you see this in David's conquering of Goliath, where two men go up to battle one another on behalf of two nations. And according to whoever wins, the entire nation wins, right? So there's a victory that comes to Israel, not by their armies and the multitude of the force, but by one man who goes on behalf of the people. He is their representative. And so in Adam, we have one. If he succeeded, we would have gained, but he failed. I think, I think we, we, we get that in society a little bit when it comes to football. Mm. So when, when England are playing football, I mean, uh, the, the whole country, we're, we're talking to each other like this. We say, look, we won. You know, uh, 
my my team won, we won. Mm. And you're like, well, no, well, I didn't win because I wasn't playing the game. And yet we have this understanding that when England, the English football team, if if they were to ever win the World Cup in in my life, in our lifetime, we have won as a nation. And so they represent us. And so I think there's a little bit in our culture where we kind of get this whole representative head stuff. The same in, in war. You know, when, when the British army went out and the American army went out in, in World War II, uh, they were representing the entire nation. And if they lost, the whole nation loses. And if they win, the whole nation wins. Mm. And so this whole idea of Adam as our federal head and, and losing <laughs> and, you know, condemning us all. And, 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 and because of that, we're, we're now totally depraved and we receive, you know, Adam's sin, the or- original sin. It's, it's not not fair. We, we, we understand these categories. And if you were to think that it's not fair, then you also would have to say that the gospel is not fair mm. because Jesus is our representative head in the gospel. Oh, amen. And, and so you can't, you can't lose one without losing both. Mm. And, and, and then you've lost the gospel. What about that other thing we kind of mentioned at the beginning that people born in sin can only do evil. They can do nothing good. And you mentioned <laughs> that in Romans 3. So how... Yeah. Is that true? Is is it does it really that way that they can't do anything good, that nothing they do is good? Yeah. And and so it's relative, isn't it? So it depend it depends what we're talking about and in the context of, of which we're talking about. So I, I remember when I was I, I first became a Calvinist and, and I was in that cage stage that Brian was talking about. And you know, I'd hear people say, you know, oh that, that Tommy down the road, he's a really good guy, and you know, Jimmy and Laura, they're really good people. And and I, I'd be seething, you know, fuming at this, and in my head, sometimes verbally, but uh, often in my head, thinking, no, that, that's that's dumb, you know, uh, no one is good but God alone, and, and that's true, because Jesus says it. Yeah, amen. But but what's the context of which Jesus is talking? It's when a, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" The goodness there is relative to eternal life. When it comes to inheriting eternal life, only God is good, which means none of us can get it. We're totally depraved. We're unable to attain salvation and eternal life by our own efforts. But if you mean that no one can ever do a good thing, I think that just denies our humanity made in the image of God. So one of the places I love is in Acts. It calls Barnabas a good man. (laughs) (laughs) But, But wait, no one's good but God alone. Well, Barnabas is he's just a nice guy. He does good things. <laughs> and so Acts is quite okay with calling him a good man. When we're talking about no one can do good, we're, we're talking about it in terms of um, to, to merit salvation, but also we're talking about it in terms of perfect good. Mm. And so every good thing that I do, even as a Christian, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, by the way, but even as a Christian, every good thing that I do is still tainted by sin and therefore is not perfectly good. And so often, if I, if, if, if I come home and Brooke says, look, can you change a nappy? I might do it, which is a good thing. But in my heart, I'm like, oh, for goodness sake, do I seriously have to change another nappy? Mm. The good act that I've done is tainted by my sin. Yeah, so I, I think a very helpful place to go, it was an illustration that John Piper said. And I, I, we're not massive fans of everything that comes out of John Piper's ministry, but this time when this kind of uh, illustration that he uses is quite helpful. And he, he, he taught, it just kind of describes this father-son relationship of a family. And this boy asks his dad if he can borrow the car to take his friends out for the evening. And they're going to go volunteer at some charity or something like that. And the dad says, well, you can take the car if you wash it first. And the boy says, I don't want to wash the car. And the dad says, no, you, well, that's, you know, that's the, the option. That's the deal. You can have the car if you wash it. If you don't, then you're not taking the car. 
So the boy gets really angry, says, I don't want to wash the stupid car, and he kind of walks off. Well, a few hours later, the dad looks out the window and his son's washing the car, right? So he's he's doing his father's will. And yet what the dad doesn't see or hear is the son is cursing his father's name, saying, I hate that man. I can't stand him. I wish he would die. He'd make me wash this car. He's so stupid. I can't stand him. I hate everything about him. Now, does that father, is he being honored by the son? Is the son doing good by his father? Is the son obeying his father? Is he honoring him? No, he's not. He's not. Because even the good thing that he's doing is stained by the sinfulness of his heart. And and that's what we're saying about total depravity. People in the world, of course, they do things that are good. There are atheists out there who commit their lives to, you know, feeding the hungry in Africa, providing clean water, doing charitable acts. They're great philanthropists who just donate tons of money to help really important causes. Those are good things. And yet they don't gain any merit before God because the stain of their sin marks them because they do not honor the one who gave them breath the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who is in control of everything, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power in their actions and deeds, they fail to honor him and they gain or grab a hold of all the glory for themselves. There's even a verse in Isaiah, isn't there, that even my righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord. And, and Jeremiah talks about the heart being deceitful above, above all things. And a, l- a lot of the time we, we don't even, and because of that, we, we don't even see the sin in our hearts when we do something you know we, we we probably even if we do something humble my lecturer used to say this even when we do something humble we then pat ourselves on the back for being so humble <laughs> and and even our even a good thing like repentance needs repenting of you know so even my repentance is often sinful because i'm not as mournful as i could be i don't grieve over my sin as much as i should often it's a half-hearted grieving if i'm being honest and so <laughs> When we're to, and so I, I guess that leads into something else that we wanted to, to talk about, which was, what about the Christian then? So is so we've been talking about total depravity. That's all of us. But what about when you receive the new birth? Because when you receive a new birth, you become a new creation, don't you? And therefore, are you still uh, enslaved to sin? And I think the answer to that is yes and no. So this is what Martin Luther said. He said, a Christian man is both righteous and a sinner holy and profane, an enemy of God, and yet a child of God. In other words, we are simultaneously saints and mm. sinners. To, to quote Luther again, it's one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, that the, he says this, he said, the old man was drowned in baptism, but that jackass is a good swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, isn't it? You're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a paradox of sorts as a Christian. On the one hand, I have this new heart, and now I love God, and I want to please Him, and I delight in Him, and I obey the law in one sense, because it's written on my heart, and I, I, lo- I love to do that. And then there's this other part of me that's sinful and, and still does sin because I love sin. And, and so there's this wrestle going on, this Romans 7 wrestle, or, or if you don't like that, the Galatians 5 wrestle of the old and new man. And so, yes, we're still totally depraved, because that old nature isn't completely gone. That jackass is a good swimmer. Mm. But he was drowned. Yeah. And so it's upholding both of those realities. And 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 I think there's dangers to go go into either extreme. So I think if you say we're no longer totally depraved at all and we're only a new creation, you end up with Wesleyan perfectionism, which is a heresy, where mm. we say that we can get to a state where we no longer sin at all in thought, word, deed, motive, or anything. 
But if you say that there's been no change at all, then Jesus isn't much of a savior. And so you, you need to sort of balance these two ideas. Yeah, I think, I think the ongoing aspect of the total depravity of man. So, so interestingly, you know, you're, you're not, never called by your depravity as a Christian. You're always called by your, your sainthood, right? So you've been made a saint in Christ. That's your truest identity. That's who you are, made righteous and perfect in our Lord Jesus because of the work he did. Now, because that's your title, that's what your name tag says, that's great news. But yeah, like Daniel said, the old man still exists and he's waging war against this new man. And so there's this internal battle. But, but the reason why this is encouraging is because from start to finish, you know, total depravity declares to you, you're not the answer. You're never the answer. You're not the answer to get into Christ. You're not the answer to believe in him. You're not the answer to gain salvation in the first place. And you're not the answer to maintain your status before God, because that old man is enough to disqualify you to every degree, unless Christ is sufficient to cover everything from start to finish. And so what this does is it creates a greater humility in the individual saint, but it also creates a constant outward looking to Jesus and his final work on the cross. You know, you have in the Reformed Confessions, you know, I think the Westminster Confession of Faith and also the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith both say this, that for a season, God may give an individual over to their sins so that they can see the greatness and the odiousness of their sins and then see a greater need for Christ and to turn to him and fall on him and more of a, a kind of a, a humble dependence. And so I think we, we can see that, that that's what's going on in our, our Christian lives. Yeah, that's right. Amen. And, and and so humility towards God is the natural reflex of this doctrine of total depravity, isn't it? I'm not just totally depraved, but totally dependent. It means that I can't worm my way out of my predicament by my own efforts. Mm. I need the perfect Christ for my dire need. And the good news is Jesus came for the depraved. He stood in our shoes, drowned in the dregs of our depravity, and gave us his life. And, and that that is the gospel. And that's why Believing something seemingly so negative as total depravity is actually good news because it leads us to the whole Christ who came and died for us and gives us all of his righteousness and takes all of our sin. So what we would say to you listening is whatever your life looks like right now, whatever sin you're trapped by, whatever sin you are wrestling with and trying to fight to get rid of, know that we're not surprised. We know who you are. We know the total depravity that marks you. And we know that that's not going to go away in this life. And so you need to look somewhere else besides yourself. Look to Christ. Outside of your depraved nature, the hope comes from one who provides himself, not you, but his perfection given as a gift. Amen. And, and so humility towards God is, is, is one aspect. And then humility towards other people. Because other people are not my problem. I am my biggest problem. I remember G.K. Chesterton uh, writing in a newspaper. He was a bit of a genius. And the question was, and he was inviting you know, loads of uh, journalists, et cetera, to, to write in this newspaper. It says, what is the biggest problem in the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote two words. I am. Huh. So yeah, yeah. I am I, my biggest problem. And so that then frees me up to be less finger pointy. I don't go around handing out tickets like I'm some sort of moral police policeman. I'm totally depraved. I'm my biggest problem. And, and when I get that, not just in my head, but in my heart, then I can start treating people with so much more respect and love and graciousness and mercy and patience and 
you know, and you can own your sin, right? Yeah. You can own your sin before your family and before your friends and, and your church family. And, you know, I think there's a power in that because what it displays is not our kind of own righteousness and our own status that we've built up in our own eyes. But what it displays to people is a gracious God who forgives even totally depraved sinners like us. And so when I speak to my kids, you know, I want them not to see, oh, my dad, you know, they grow up and become adults. My dad always had it together. He never got it wrong. And he was always had the right answer. And he was always right in everything he did. No, no, no. What, what they're going to see is, is a dad who comes to them and says, I, I screwed up and I'm sorry. But you know what? This is why we can come to a gracious God in Christ and find forgiveness and rest and peace. And, and that's super liberating. Because if, if I'm the answer, then I need to perform. And the problem with that is I realize that I don't perform, not as well as I should. But if, if I'm the problem and Jesus is the answer, then I don't need to pretend to be something that I'm not. I can just freely receive what he has done for yeah. me. And that is so liberating. That is a weight off your shoulders. If, 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 if you've never heard this stuff before, what Brian just said and you know, what I'm trying to say here, Please take this. Mm. This is just, this is the pilgrim's progress. This is the, the whole sack falling off of your back if you get this. Mm. I love what Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He says, To those who have, have obtained a faith of equal standing with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior. Mm. You know, if, if you're a Christian, you have the same standing as the Apostle Peter right now. You don't need to do anything to make your, your, yourself in a better standing or a worse standing. You can't do anything negative to make yourself in a worse standing. You have an equal standing with the apostles because you have the same righteousness as theirs. Mm. Yeah, so I, th I think that's a wrap. Uh, and so that's the first of hopefully many, God willing, of, uh, of Calvinism. We'll go through the, the other points in, in later episodes. Thanks for tuning in and uh, make sure that you are resting in Christ. Thanks for listening. Thank you.